If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, the book of Joshua, chapter 5. We're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 5, the first 12 verses. On your chair is a copy of the text uh, and some room on the back there for notes. Um, One of the beautiful things about preaching through a book of the Bible is that you come upon passages that perhaps as a preacher you wouldn't select if you were being topical um, or, uh, or plan to coincide with certain events happening in the life of a church. Today, I'm really, really excited about the way that the Lord has providentially brought together a Sunday where we're talking about baptism and circumcision and then coming to the Lord's table all in one day because those three things help us understand the others. Um, each one helps us understand the others. And one of the questions that, that this raises for me um, and for us is just the question, what kind of book is the Bible? What is this? When you think of, of God's word and, and what, he's, what he's given us here, uh, I think it's very easy for us, especially in, in our culture today, to see this book as perhaps a uh, Uh, just kind of a collection of platitudes and moral fables that are intended to help keep us on the straight and narrow, that it's sort of a uh, a God's little rule and and instruction book for our lives, as if we can just say, I'm having this issue, I can read about it, it's topically arranged, and it's not that way. Um, This is telling a story, and it's a story that is graphic in nature, very graphic in nature, rated R graphic in nature, the Bible is. But it isn't, and see, here's the difference. It's not gratuitous. There's things in here that are graphic, things that make you say, that's shocking, that's grotesque, what we're reading, and yet, it's a book that's drenched in purpose, that God has given it to us, given this to us for a reason. It's It's got this purpose, this usefulness, as Paul said, for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. And so the truth is, if we regard the Bible as just a tame collection of platitudes and moral fables that are given to keep us on the straight and narrow, what we're going to have to do in order to maintain that is we're going to have to ignore a whole lot of what's in there because there's a lot in there In fact, the whole message of this book is saying there is a way for you to live. There is morality. There is truth. There are things that you need to know in order to live, but you are also needing to understand that you are fundamentally at your core a lawbreaker. And what about that? What about that? I mean, it'd be one thing if this book just said, here's the rules, keep them, I know you can do it. But that's not the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is, here's what it looks like to live a righteous life, and you can't do it. And so you need help. You need rescue. You need saving. Today's text is graphic. It's one of those texts that we'll read, and you may think to yourself, is this passage saying what I think it's saying? And the answer is, yes. It's saying what you think it's saying but it's pointing to something that is powerful. Something about God's grace in the lives of his people that all of us today need to understand. And so I wanna read the text and then we'll unpack it a little bit. Joshua chapter five, the first 12 verses. 
So they had just crossed over into the promised land. They'd crossed the Jordan. They hadn't taken Jericho yet. Verse one, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Harloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way they had come out from Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out from Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord God said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. This is a big moment in the lives of the people of Israel. A lot of things are happening in a short window of time. We read at the end of that text that God has now stopped. This is when he stops giving them manna. What they had been eating for 40 years is now, now it's time for them to be eating the fruit of the land because God has brought them in to the land. This text completes the story of the people of Israel crossing over from four decades of wilderness wandering into the promised land. And the question on our minds has to be, why in the world now would God say, stop what you're doing, gather up the boys, and circumcise every last one of them? Why now? I mean, they're in the middle of a conquest. They're getting ready to go into battle. They need to be strong. And God is saying, in effect, to Joshua, weaken them, every last one of them, with this sign of circumcision. But there's so much meaning in the sign of circumcision for them. Over 400 years earlier, God promised Abraham that he's gonna be the father of a great nation and this nation would belong to God and that Abraham and his family would never deserve this. 
They would never merit it. They would never be God's chosen people because they were just that awesome. They would be God's chosen people because he promised that he would take them and that he would keep them and he made this promise and said, it would be, it'll be for your generations after you and they're gonna outnumber the stars in the sky before any of them had had a chance to live perfectly or to foul up their lives, God said, those are going to be my people and I am never going to let them go. And God didn't just say that he'd take them. He didn't just say, just trust me. But he told Abraham, now, I want you to do something to mark yourselves as belonging to me. And I want you to do this in an ongoing way when your sons are born, to continue to mark them. And so after making this covenant with Abraham, he gave him this sign of circumcision to do just that, to mark the recipients. And this mark signified three important things, okay? Here's what they are, circumcision. Number one, that God was committed to removing the spiritual uncleanness from his people. That's one. Two, and this is an important one for us to understand, okay? Forgive me if I embarrass you with what I'm about to say. By the way, that's how a pastor gets everybody in the room to listen to what he's about to say. <laughs> this covenant blessing was something that everybody needed to understand was something that was being passed down through the generations. And so it is applied to the source of the seed. Meaningful. Three, the fulfillment of God's covenant relationship with his people, his promise, is something that would, in their minds, say, this requires the shedding of blood to be marked to be part of God's covenant people requires the shedding of blood, making this one of many Old Testament moments where God very clearly foreshadows the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. Circumcision is one of those things that we might call a sacramental act, a physical sign, outward physical sign of something that represents an inward spiritual truth. So, so one of the defining Marks one of the sacramental acts that the Lord has given the church today are two, and we're doing both of them this morning, baptism and the Lord's table. Things that Christ has said do this. In fact, that's one of the marks of a sacrament today is that it's something that Jesus himself says to his church in his word, do this and keep doing this until I come back, until I stop you, continue on with this. In the Old Testament, Circumcision was a bloody sign that pointed to the need for the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So there was a bloody sign. But in the New Testament now, we have what? A, a cleansing sign. We have washing. Why? That makes sense. Christ has shed his blood to remove our sin. And so a bloody sign is no longer appropriate because the blood has already been shed and now what we need is the cleansing and outpouring of the spirit of Christ. And so rather than signifying what needs to be done in order for us to have peace with God, baptism points to what has already been done 
in order for us to have peace with Christ. Okay? You following me on this? It's kind of beautiful, isn't it? To consider why, why the difference? Why do the New Testament disciples gather together when people come into the church and say, it's great that you all believe in Jesus, but you all also need to be circumcised. What do they do? It's, it's amazing. Paul says, get the apostles together in Jerusalem. We're all going and we're gonna settle this before a single one of these guys actually goes through with this. And they come back and they say, you know, we've talked about it. We've prayed about it. We sought the counsel of the Holy Spirit on this together. No, we don't need this. There doesn't need to be a continual shedding of blood as a sign of the, sign of the covenant because Christ has already done this. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. All right. That, my friends was a lesson in doctrine. And doctrine's important. It's important for us to understand why. Now, I recognize people in this room come from a variety of different views on baptism and the Lord's Supper and circumcision and the relationships between those things. I understand that. I, 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 I even appreciate that. Um, but I want to give an explanation for that because I think it's important for us to understand. But now, I want us to ask an even more fundamental underlying question. And the question is this. Why? Why would God tell his people to observe these memorable physical expressions of a spiritual identity? Why do we do this? What's the point of it? Have you ever thought about that? What is actually accomplished when we have a baptism or we come to the Lord's table? Why does this even matter? Because we've already said there's nothing magical about the water in the baptism bowl. It came from the sink upstairs. There's nothing magical about circumcision. There's nothing magical about the Lord's table that we're going to come to later in just a minute. No sacramental act actually transmits the grace of salvation. It's not a conduit of grace in some superstitious, mysterious way. So what are these things for? What are they for? They certainly aren't proof of citizenship so that God won't forget us, so that we'll be able to say, yeah, but God, remember I, had, you know, I have my credentials. It's not that because God doesn't forget. They don't benefit God in any way. These things are for us. That's the point. These things are for us. They're for our benefit. And so how do they help? And the answer is that they are like a lag bolt that's been pounded in to the mountain face of our faith. And they assure us that we are held secure. And I want to illustrate this. I keep this box right here in my office. A friend of mine made this box for me. And in this box, I keep things that are meaningful to me. So, like for example... I lived in Jerusalem for a semester and uh, we took a trip and this stone right here is a smooth stone from the brook of Elah where David gathered five smooth stones to slay Goliath. It's a little riverbed that is full of smooth stones and I have one. What else do I have in here? I have... Uh, my... First wedding ring. I've only been married once. It just doesn't fit my finger anymore. <laughs> but I keep it in here. I have in here uh, a ring somewhere in here that I gave Lisa when we were dating. 
as a way of wooing her and persuading her that I was as advertised and awesome. <laughs> and that worked. And I, have, and I have this, and this is what I want to talk about. This right here. You know what this is? This is a hospital bracelet. A couple weeks ago, if you were here, I talked about when Chris was born, my son, being in the hospital. And I have this bracelet. This is the bracelet that the hospital gave me when he was born. I wore it on my wrist. And it's an important thing to me. It's important because it says something about my reality, the world I live in now. And it says something about who I am living in that reality. Let me unpack that. This bracelet says, I'll just read it to you. It says, boy, Ramsey Lisa, 12600, I can't, it's faded now, let's see, um, room 2130. And then it says, father. And then it says, A55584. And this is profoundly meaningful to me because this bracelet testifies of something that happened that is irreversible. That on January 26th of 2000, I became father with Lisa to Boy Ramsey in room 2130 of St. John's Mercy Medical. And there was no undoing that, you know? That's just the way it is. This bracelet tells me that my reality is this. I have a son. I am his father. My son's over there going, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm his, I have a son. I am his father. Lisa is his mother. That's what it tells me. And so I will be from that day on. That will never be undone. And so I hold on to this. Why? Because my confidence can be shaken. Because I can doubt myself like you wouldn't believe. I can be so hard on myself. I can doubt my worthiness. I keep this also, I want you to know, for a day that I pray never comes when maybe our relationship is strained. And I need to remember who we are. This marks a reality for me and a reality that has shifted and that shifted on the 26th of January of 2000. But it's not just that reality. It also is, it identifies me in a way that is, you can't argue with it. And, it, and it's not, how do I say this? This bracelet verifies certain things and just doesn't verify other things. For example, it doesn't say, look at their eyes. They have to be father and son because they have the same eyes. It doesn't say, look at how much he loves the boy. Obviously, he's his father. It doesn't say, he's his father and he's going to be a great father. He's going to do all the right things, have all the right conversations at all the right times. This doesn't say 
anything about the quality of dad I'm going to be, but it just says I'm a dad. And what's more, it says it in this brutally objective way. It identifies me with him by having this printed on it. A, five, 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 eight, four. There are four of these in existence. I wear one, Lisa wears one, Chris has one on his wrist and on his ankle, and they all say A, five, 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 eight, four. And it's so objective. I wear the bracelet, and the hospital staff knows who I am. I am father of boy Ramsey. And I don't have to show myself worthy of being his dad. I don't have to show that I am going to succeed as a father. All I have to do, all I have to do is match up the numbers and the numbers verify that I am who I say I am. God help me. What does this have to do with what we're talking about? When Chris was born, God had not made me a good or wise father. When I was born again into the family of God, God had not made me a good or wise Christian. I've been lousy at both. I continue to my own amazement sometimes to be profoundly lousy at certain parts of both, even still. And yet, sacraments don't verify that we deserve anything. They don't verify that I'm completely victorious over this particular area of sin or that I've proven some personal piety that makes me deserve to be in the family of God. In other words, circumcision, circumcision nor baptism, nor communion, they don't identify us as being particularly skilled at living the Christian life. What they do is objectively identify us as belonging to God even still. And that is an important thing for us to understand. Can you see the benefits of this? Because how many times have you wanted to just throw your hands up in the air and say, I cannot believe I did that again. How could God possibly love me? Who am I kidding? Who am I kidding? I keep returning to the same stuff and the same stuff and any decent God with a head on his shoulders should be able to look at me and say, you're, you're wasting my time. But with the sacraments, it doesn't work that way. In a way, I want you to understand this. In a way, what the Lord's table says to you when you come and take the bread and the cup, in a way, this is a part of it, it says to you, A55584. Deal with that. If your faith is in Christ, it tells you, this is for you. And it doesn't matter what kind of week you had, it doesn't matter what kind of day you've had, it doesn't matter what kind of year you've had, if your faith is in Christ, this is for you. Martin Luther, great reformer. One of the things that was beautiful about Martin Luther was how he lived his life like an like, like he was just in the middle of just this great fight. And he was. 
but he, but he engaged with this and he'd have these moments where he would just be destroying himself spiritually, just, just beating himself up. I can't believe that God would love me. I can't, and wrestling with this and he'd have this moment where he, would, where he would start to bang on his table and he would say, but I have been baptized. I have been baptized. I have been baptized. And in the silence of his own company there or the noise of his own company, he's appealing to something because he knew he couldn't appeal to his performance to reassure his standing with God, and so he appealed to his baptism, which testified to what God had done in him, that God had cleansed him, that God had made him his own, that God had washed away his sins. We can't prove we belong to God by subjectively pointing to our good works or our wisdom. An objective reality, a barren cross, an empty tomb, a risen savior, a God-given faith in that Savior to cleanse us of our sin, that's what gives believers our identity. Something that was done outside of just us and our conduct. What God has done. The Lord's Supper insists Christ gave himself up to pay the wages of your sin. Baptism insists if Christ's blood has cleansed us, then we're clean. And that's the way it is. Regardless of how good you are at embracing that, it's the way it is. A sacrament is this lag bolt that's drilled deep into the face of a mountain of evidence that is testifying on your behalf that if your faith is in Christ, you are clean. Ephesians. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Great battles lay ahead for me. Great battles lay ahead for you. Great battles lay ahead for Joshua and the people he's leading. But see what God does. He doesn't tell them to make arrows. He doesn't tell them to sharpen swords. He doesn't tell them to practice their formations. He says, remember who you are and remember who I am and remember that in your weakness I am strong. I've called you. I've made you my own. I will never let you go. These sacraments insist that we are not who we say we are, but that we are who God says we are. They insist that the battles before us are not ultimately ours to fight or ours to win. They're his. And so the Lord gives us these things to do to slow ourselves, to weaken and humble ourselves, to come into his presence, to bow before him, to stop when we're busy and we're running and we're already thinking about all the other things that we want to try to get done today. And he says, just, just slow down, stop, reflect, remember, proclaim. The sacraments insist that God's faithfulness to you rests upon his covenant promise to take you and to keep you as his own in an everlasting way. And that he does this through the life, death, and resurrection of his son who he gave for us. He lived and died in our place. And when our faith is in him, brothers and sisters, 
Nothing can overrule that. Pray with me. Father, there is so much to say. This is only a portion of what we could say about coming to your table and about why you give us sacramental acts to do. But Lord, we see that you give us in baptism this image of being cleansed. And in the Lord's Supper, this image of being fed and nourished by you. And Lord, I pray that you would meet us this morning as we come to your table, that you would meet us here and remind us of precisely how uh, you did that. And we would understand that this table is not for your benefit, but it's for ours, uh, that we would commune with you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray for your glory. Amen.